everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today I'm with Mike Newman, and we're going to be reviewing our mock exam for the ARE 5.0 Construction and Evaluation Exam. Uh, this is the last exam in ARE 5.0, the sixth exam. And I mean, if you think about it in terms of sort of the conventional process of, you know, making a building, it's basically the C, it's, it's the exam about CA or Construction Administration. Um, so Mike's got a good um, mock exam for you guys today. Uh, before we get started, if you would like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, uh, we're going to do a session where we uh, have a discussion with recently licensed architects to learn how they passed, what their favorite um, way to celebrate after they took the <laughs> exam was. What, what snack they used yeah. while they were uh, studying. Exactly. Um, all the sort of tricks and, and to hear a couple cool stories about how people did it. Um, last time we had someone really great on um, who talked about, and we've had lots of different great people on, um, but last one was a little notable, but we had someone who was a parent who was trying to do all of this while they were parenting and uh, had some really interesting conversations about that. So this next group, we'll have a new group of, of people and uh, I'm sure they're gonna bring some interesting stuff. You know, it's always a really good one. It's definitely worth listening into because it, it always goes in a direction that you're not quite expecting yeah. and some new idea comes up uh, every time. So yeah. I really like that one. So if you want to register for that, you can go onto our website, blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. Um, and then during the broadcast, you'll, of course, have the chance to, you know, ask questions to the group and, and the folks who are sort of on the panel. Um, so that's what's coming up next session. Just a quick update. Um, we actually, this week, I think, maybe last week, um, we released an update to our video player page. Um, and some enhancements to the video player itself. So there's a bunch of really awesome updates. Uh, if you're a Black Spectacle subscriber um, and haven't logged in for a week or so, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. It's nice we have the autoplay feature now. Um, we have transcripts and captions. Um, and what else? Um, there's a speed control now on the, on the video player. Um, quality control. There's, there's a bunch of new features. So um, like I said, if you haven't, uh, haven't been there for a little bit, uh, certainly check it out. Um, so far, it's been received pretty well. Um, and so, uh, as I often say, as you guys probably know, at Black Spectacles, we have built a comprehensive ARE 4 and 5 exam curricula you can utilize. And I often like to remind folks that, you know, if you'd like to have your boss pay for your Black Spectacles membership, please be sure to tell them about our firm licenses for any size firm. Uh, so whether you work at a 10-person or a 10,000-person firm, uh, we have a firm license that gives multiple users access, group admin and reporting and all that stuff. Um, in fact, SOM just signed up for a group license, so if anyone from SOM, uh, SOM is on, on, the, on the webinar today, welcome aboard. Awesome. <laughs> um, and of course, they're a large firm. Uh, we also have uh, many, many firms in, in between of all different sizes, so it's not just for big firms. Um, so, and of course, today at the end of uh, uh, our session, we have a special discount on Black Spectacle individual memberships that we'll be sharing. Um, and then at the end of today's episode, we'll choose someone from all the folks who submitted their answers to this mock exam, and they'll win a free one-month ARE prep uh, Black Spectacle subscription. And we'll be checking your answers, and everyone who gets them all right will get a free Black Spectacles t-shirt, so stay tuned for that too. Uh, our guest, of course, today is uh, is Mr. Mike Newman. Uh, if you don't know him, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also a founder of Shed Studio and he's the instructor for our uh, Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep uh, curriculum, which if you haven't already checked it out, um, head over to blackspectacles.com where you can watch any of the uh, free tutorials for all of our exam prep courses. Today we'll be taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box as well as on Twitter using the ARE Live podcast hashtag. 
Um, so that's pretty much it. With that, I'll hand it over to Mike. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Um, as Mark said, uh, the construction and evaluation exam is essentially the sort of construction administration portion as we would normally uh, talk about it, but it does actually also include the bidding portion, uh, so kind of preparing bid packages and things like that. So we'll talk a bit about bidding, we'll talk a bit about uh, construction, uh, kind of the role of the architect, uh, and some of the sort of aspects that, uh, that come into play. Um, just a little warning, I have a bit of a sore throat, so uh, if you hear any sort of rude sounds, I apologize now. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's, uh, let's just jump into our little uh, mini mock exam here. All right, question number one. During the construction phase, which is true? A, the architect must produce the shop drawings in a timely manner. B, the architect must review the OSHA requirements appropriate for this site. C, the contractor must respond to the RFIs in a timely manner. D, the contractor is responsible for means and methods. So, okay, first, First one, as we look at A, the architect must produce the shop drawings in a timely manner. Architects generally don't produce shop drawings. Uh, the contractors uh, typically, uh, say for example, a sub or somebody who they're buying the material from uh, will produce the shop drawings. And shop drawings are that kind of middle zone, right? There, there's the uh, construction documents that the architect has put together. Uh, there's uh, a whole bunch of other elements like schedules and things that the contractor has put together. Uh, but there's still always going to be a little bit of a place in between where the, the drawings didn't fully uh, figure out and the contractor doesn't fully know the right answer. So they produce their own drawings in response to the construction documents that the architect has produced. And then the architect reviews those uh, to see, like, okay, does this make sense? So an example might be, um, maybe for steel, uh, maybe a bunch of steel beams and, and columns and there's a bunch of connectors and that's pretty well detailed uh, with a few example details uh, on the construction documents. But somebody, when they're producing the actual piece of steel, needs to place all of the holes for all of the uh, bolts to be able to get through. And so there's a specific drawing that's much more detailed than what the standard construction document would be. And that would be for literally every piece of steel, or at least uh, every um, example piece of steel. Uh, and so that would be a shop drawing. And then the architects, the GC, everybody would review the shop drawings, make sure it was in line with the drawings, uh, with the construction documents, and then uh, either say yes or no to that uh, level of quality for shop drawings. So that's something that the contractors are producing, uh, not the architect. I have seen a few examples where architects actually produce shop drawings. It's kind of a complicated thing, but it's like 0.1% of the time. B, the architect must review the OSHA requirements appropriate for this site. We're going to talk about this a few times um, as we go along here, but absolutely not. Um, the uh, OSHA issues are about workplace, and the job site is not the architect's work workplace. The job site is the contractor's workplace. So the contractor should be looking at the OSHA requirements for the site. Now, if what this said was the OSHA requirements for the design, then that would be a different question. Uh, because you may be doing a factory or something, and there may well be OSHA requirements for the design process. But if we're talking about the construction site, that's the contractor's world. C, uh, the contractor must respond to the RFIs in a timely manner. Um, 
again, there are a few examples um, where architects actually produce RFIs and the contractors respond to them. Uh, there's a few moments where that comes up. Uh, if there's something going on and the architect doesn't understand a question, you might produce an RFI and it goes the opposite direction. But the vast majority of the time, the RFIs are the contractors have gotten to a certain point of the project and something just doesn't make sense or they just need more clarification or they, and it's a request for information. And so they are just, it's a, a tool for sending out uh, to the architects to say, all right, here's the, here are the items that I need clarification on. Please uh, get, get that back to me. So if C had said the architect must respond to RFIs in a timely manner, that would be a reasonable uh, response, but it doesn't. It says the contractor, so it's just not a typical situation that way. Which leaves us with D. The contractor is responsible for the means and methods. So this is uh, such a sort of simple statement, but it's sort of loaded with all kinds of uh, intense meaning. Uh, and some version of this will show up uh, on the exam somewhere for you, like probably on this exam, but it could show up in one of the other exams. There's a clean line, what's intended to be a clean line. It's actually not so clean, but we'll get into that as we go along. But the idea is there's a clean line between the liabilities of the designer, of the architect, and the liabilities of the builder, the contractor. And that clean line is that the design thinking, the decision making, the design intent is all the architect's liability. The site the actual process of building something, the schedule, uh, the where are the trucks going to park when the concrete trucks show up, all of that stuff is the contractors. That's the physical building, the, the making of that, and all of the decision making around the physical building. The decision making around the design, again, is the architect. So architects are design intent, contractors are the actual physical making of these things. And when we talk about the physical making and the sort of all the decisions that go into that process, that's referred to as the means and methods of building. So uh, you'll often hear this term, the means and methods of building. The reason it can be a little complicated is because, you know, we start saying, well, the architects aren't involved with the means and methods of building. And you're like, but wait, well then why did I just do 15 details about how the concrete uh, formwork is gonna get put? because that's in the time, the, the framework of the decision-making process for the design. Uh, once you actually get to the point where there's a contractor, a GC, and they're in control of the site, the architect is no longer in control of the means and methods. It has switched over to the contractor. The contractor uh, is responsible for all of that schedule, uh, safety, all of those things. So that's why that OSHA one on B, really falls into the means and methods uh, for the contractor. All right, let's try the next one. So a ton of people got that right. Yeah. So nice try, you didn't trick them. All right, this one may trick them. Uh, this one is kind of a trick. It w this one wouldn't be written quite this way on the actual exam, so don't worry if it looked a little confusing, but uh, just trying to make a point here. Two, uh, when reviewing a G702 payment application for a state-funded project, you see that the plumbing line item has A, a total contract of $100,000 with a standard retainage, and B, uh, percent completion of the work shown at 50%. How much is the check for the plumbing contractor going to be this month? So if you uh, kind of think about it a little bit, the, you imagine that uh, you know, you've got a whole series of these line items 
so you know maybe you've got uh, the electrician, uh, you know you've got some carpenters, uh, you've got a whole bunch of different things, the elevator, you know, all, everything is all listed in a great big spreadsheet and one of them is the plumber. Uh, and the plumber is going to have a thing where it says, well, what's the contract? Uh, so what's the total contract for them? And in this case, it's 100000 uh, And then there's going to be a, a line item about uh, how much has been paid already. There's going to be a line item about uh, uh, you know, any other little facets to, the, like are there extras to the contract that have been added in? It's a, it's a whole series of these different, uh, these different elements. So they got to go on and on and on. And then the last one is going to be, uh, uh, well, actually, not quite the last one, but the, towards the end will be the one that says, "All right, if this is if they're at uh, fifty percent uh, done, then they are owed at this point half of that uh, hundred thousand, which is going to be fifty thousand. But we have a retainage, so there's a retainer on this, and the retainer is that situation where." Uh, imagine you've got, uh, let's say, the plumbers, and you get to the point where uh, they've been paid out um, 99000 of their $100,000 uh, contract. And then as you go around, you realize, oh, wait, they, we, we totally forgot to put this one thing in. It never got picked up. We need to get the plumbers back to do this work. Well, I mean, you're counting on them coming back because they want to finish the work. Like a thousand bucks, is that really worth coming back for? Uh, like they've got other projects now, they've moved on, and so uh, it's just not enough money to sort of get them to come to come back to finish something off. And so the idea of a retainer is, as this uh, re the retainage is uh, that as this is being paid out, you never actually pay the full amount out. You always put a certain amount into escrow into a sort of safe spot onto the side. Uh, and typically, uh, that would be either 5 or, say, 10%. Um, uh, could be other numbers. Sometimes it's higher, up to 20. Uh, sometimes it's more like 1%. Depends on the scale of the project and what kinds of uh, problems you foresee. Like, is it, does it seem like it's going to be hard? And if it's a much, much bigger uh, uh, project, you know, if, you're, if you have a line item that's, you know, $5 million, holding back 10% of $5 million, is that's just not reasonable. Uh, so it'd be more like 2% a, a or 1% or something for, for a very big lineup. But typically it'd be 5 maybe possibly 10%. Uh, and then that gets held off to the side so that by the time you get to the very end of the project, everybody has a stake in the game. They all want to get the project finished because there's a little chunk of money in escrow waiting for them once everything gets finalized and finished out. Uh, so you will definitely see this in anything. Uh, the example here is talking about a state-funded project, so a government-funded project. You absolutely will see that in those government-funded projects. But a lot of different kinds of projects uh, will do this. Probably, I don't know, 75% um, of the projects I work on, uh, we have a retainage of some kind. Uh, so the answer would be something less than 50,000. So it could be uh, any answer that you gave might be 45,000, it might be uh, 47,500, 
Uh, it could be 40,000 if it was a higher number. So anything less than 50, uh, sort of between 40 and 50 would be a correct answer on that. And so I think here's a good point, guys, and I want you to <clears throat> make sure you're, you're following here. So Mike's, Mike wrote this question to really, as a way to have this discussion about a standard retainage. But um, I think very likely, and Mike, you can comment on this as well, in the real exam, they would probably articulate what a standard retainage is. So it, the question, let's say on the real exam, might say something like a standard retainage of 10%. And then you would you'd be able to, you'd have all the information to get the exact answer. But Mike didn't put that in here because he wanted to kind of use this have as this a teaching, teaching moment. So you just kind of got to separate the actual question um, from what Mike is trying to do here, and don't take it too literally. NCARB is probably going to give you um, give you all of the all the numbers and all the things you need in order to really to get the exact answer. Absolutely. Um, and two other quick things to say about that. Uh, uh, this would be a kind of classic example in one of the um, larger uh, case study ones where there might be a uh, contract that has the standard retainage in it. Yeah, uh, and then something else that's talking about it, and then a question that regarding it, and you would have to know to go look to see what the standard retainage is. So it may not it may not be in the question; it may be in one of the reference materials. So yeah, that's that's, great, great that's kind of the way it was how I was imagining it. Another quick thing to say is um, there won't be a huge number of ones where you have to fill in a number. Um, most of the time, it's going to be choose one of you know A, B, C, or D, or one of the you know choose a couple out of the out of the um, choose all, all that apply. Uh, a few other things uh, where you have a little drawing and you draw in the flashing or something like that. There's a few different sort of question types, but one of them is uh, this where you have to fill in an, uh, a number. Um, and often that number is not a super specific number. It'll be a range of numbers. And the reason is that you know you might be doing a quick calculation and rounding off to the uh, you know, uh, integer, somebody else might be doing it rounding off in some other way and, uh, or, uh, you know, some, so there, there often be a little bit of a range. So don't fret about these, just kind of figure out what's going on and then get the number down because uh, it's not worth going, spending extra time trying to figure that part out. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, just maybe reiterate where you're getting that from. When we spoke with NCARB um, maybe a year ago, <clears throat> that was one of the things they talked about is how they do build in, you know, the, that they're quite reasonable with the way that they um, think about the answers. And so if there is, you know, if there's a reasonable... Yeah, um, there's a uh, range. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If, if, if a slope is supposed to be 1 to 12, then it's, the answer is going to be 1 to 12, not 1 to 12.5 to 13.5. But if there's some, some opportunity for there to be some sort of rounding or something like that, then they do accommodate that. So you're right, don't, don't make them freak out about it. All right, next one. Number three, in order to complete the construction, typically, there's a great deal of communication between the architect and the GC. These communications consist of which of the following? Choose three. So we've already talked about RFIs, so we've got a little cheat in there. Uh, so RFIs absolutely are part of the communication back and forth. That's request for information. Uh, that's something that's sort of an official process. Uh, there's tons of ways they can do this. It's not just the three that we've got um, buried in here. There's just lots of different ways that communication happens, but there's sort of a few that are kind of uh, um, formal and called out. So let's think about it. So RFIs, definitely uh, one. Schedule values. Schedule values is a really interesting answer. It is not actually a correct answer here 
So it, you could kind of, it could be, it's sort of a secondary correct answer, but it's not a good enough correct answer. Um, so schedule of values is when you're producing a bid package. So the architect will produce a bid package and will ask how they want the information to come back. So you have the easy way to, you know, if you don't tell people how you want the information to come back to you, then every contractor will do it differently, and it's very hard to judge one bid against another. So you have this whole package that the architect helps the owner put together, um, and we are putting that uh, package uh, together. One of the things you will often do is like you're just not 100% sure whether in the end you're going to be able to afford the uh, uh, patent leather floor that you have uh, with the uh, silver uh, paint uh, on it to give it that little shimmer that can you think that's going to be just awesome. Uh, and I'm uh, joking, but of course, actually, a friend of mine actually did that recently uh, in a small room. I was going to say, uh, did you recently uh, <laughs> stay in a W hotel yeah, or something? Yeah, it, it was ridiculous. Um, and you, you're just not sure you're going to be. So you put that into the drawings, but then maybe you put a schedule of values that says, uh, well, how much would vinyl tile be per square foot? And that way, everybody, all those bidders are all putting together their bid with the actual flooring uh, built into the leather flooring built into the bid. But then if you end up having to, you just can't afford it, you can take it out and they can't say, oh, by the way, the vinyl tile is going to be the same cost as a leather flooring because now you're already, you've already chosen me and uh, it'd be too hard for you to back out and get a different bidder at this point, so I'm going to stick it to you. Uh, so the schedule of values is a way for you to kind of keep control of that, uh, that kind of money. Like if, if something that you think might come up, then you would want to put it into your bid package. Now, having said that, if you have 500 things on your schedule of values, your bidders are all, the, the price just went up on your project, because what that says to them is that you don't have any idea what the hell's going on with your project. If you have four things or 10 things on your schedule of values, well, that's reasonable. If it's a big, big project, you might have you know, 100 things, but organized in various logical ways. Uh, so the schedule of values, very useful thing, part of the bid package. Um, and sort of part of the communication about the costs of things, but not really an answer for this uh, particular uh, thing. Bulletins. Uh, yep, bulletins is a sort of, uh, it's a way of uh, that you haven't been asked the question by the contractor, but you're producing information that you know they're going to need. Uh, or that the owner has asked for clarifications or maybe clarifications that inspectors uh, that they've asked for and you know that the contractor is going to need this information. So it's, a, it's like an RFI but without the question being asked. So you're just producing uh, bulletins. Uh, and then a huge one in terms of the communication back and forth is going to be uh, the shop drawings, which we started talking about, and submittals. So often you'll say, all right, we want uh, the brushed nickel, blah, 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 and uh, you know, faucets and whatever, and you sort of put that out into the world on your construction document set, uh, and then somebody goes and gets an example and brings it back and says, all right, here's our submittal. Sometimes it's a, a uh, promotional material, brochures, uh, websites, things like that. Sometimes it's the physical object, uh, and it might be paint colors, it might be carpet types, it might be faucets, anything like that. But it's a moment where this is what you said, and now they're saying, okay, we heard what you said, this is what we're able to get, which sometimes is a little different, and so there's a moment where that's part of that communication that's going back and forth between the architect and the GC. So those would be the three answers. Uh, waivers, we're going to talk more about waivers in a minute. 
classification delivery system sounds really important, uh, and I just made that up. Uh, so that's definitely nothing. Uh, and inspection reviews, uh, those are things where you're working with the inspectors, and certainly RFIs and bulletins and things like that, uh, shop drawings often are revolved around the inspection reviews, but they're not the communication uh, between the architect. They're the thing they're communicating about. Uh, so those are the three for that. Let's jump to number four. Okay, a lot of people hanging in here still. Awesome, <clears throat> awesome. It's quite an art form you've, you've developed, by the way. Do I say this all the time? But the art form around creating, creating things fake. that sound <laughs> Fake things real. that sound real. Yeah. Um, for the most part, they don't actually do that on the exam. They actually use real names of things. That's because they're not as talented. They're as not you. as talented. <laughs> um, uh, they use real things, uh, but that they're just not the right real thing. Um, but I think they do occasionally make things up. All right, number four. When preparing to send out for bids, the architect's role should be A, choose the bidder, B, choose the low bidder, C, advise the owner on choosing the bidder, D, for liability reasons, the architect should not choose the bidder. Uh, so the answer here is C. Uh, when you come down to it, it's the owner's project. Uh, it's their deal to sign a contract with the bidder that then becomes the GC. Uh, it becomes a very important sort of relationship for them. It's not really reasonable that the architect would choose the bidder. Uh, and for B, it's not really reasonable to say across the board that you're going to choose the low bidder. You might get a low bid that when you look at the bid and it was you know, written in pencil and uh, the numbers didn't add up and uh, they've never built anything before and the CEO is uh, 16 and uh, you know, like low bid is not necessarily the smart bid. Uh, and so while there are often times when you have to go with a low bid, just for obvious reasons, it's not the always thing. Uh, so you, that's just not a reasonable answer. And the architect's role in the bidding process is you put together the bid package, you put together the sort of um, list of bidders taking some, maybe you're putting in some names, maybe the owner's putting in some names, maybe the funders are putting in some names. Various people might put in names for who should be on the bid list. You're putting the package together, you're getting your drawings and your specifications uh, and all of that sort of bid package, uh, and then you're sending it out to everybody, you're dealing with the addendas, you're answering all the questions through the addendas, and then all the bids come in, and your the job is to advise the owner in how to choose. So they are choosing the, the final bidder, but your job is to help them choose. Now, I've had plenty of situations where owners said to me, I have no idea, just choose one who you think is gonna work, and whatever, that's fine. Like, they can do that if they want. But the, the situation is one where they really should be choosing that. It's their liability, it's their relationships, it's their money. Um, your role is to give them information for how to choose. Uh, and so D is not true for liability reasons. The architect should not choose the bidder. Um, I, I would say you shouldn't choose the bidder, uh, but the only time you should choose the bidder is when the owner says, you know, I want you to choose the bidder. But it's not, a, it's not so much a liability thing. It's really that your role is to help the owner choose the bidder. Down to 15 from okay. 150 responses, I think. Number five, which is true about FF&E? Uh, again, this is also one of those things um, that they've talked about on, uh, when we talked to NCARB, uh, as Mark was talking about, um, 
they're not really trying to do sort of gotcha questions. Um, and this is kind of a gotcha question. So like, again, this is just uh, to, to give me something to talk about more than an actual regular question. Um, so if you don't know what FF&E is, you would have a very hard time answering this question. I don't think they would say FF&E without giving you more information uh, on the actual exam. So let's just run through it. So FF&E, uh, which is true about FF&E? FF&E is uh, fixtures, furnishings, and uh, equipment. So, um, you know, a drywall wall with all the studs and all the drywall and uh, the uh, base at the floor and the paint on it and all of that, that's part of the base building. That's part of the building construction. The FF&E is going to be uh, the furnishings that are going to come in, the microwave that's going to sit on the countertop, the, uh, all of those sort of extra things that happen as part of a construction process. Uh, so FF&E A uh, requires the GC to uh, meet certain insurance levels. Um, it's not really about insurance. Same thing with B. Uh, there may be something regarding the insurance if the FF&E was particularly valuable and people were worried about it uh, walking off the site or something like that. But that's just not a, it's not a typical answer. Uh, the sort of typical best answer out of uh, the four of these is going to be C. And uh, C is FF&E, fixture, fixtures, furnishings, and uh, equipment uh, are often not considered as part of the construction budget. So that sounds really weird. This is kind of, like I said, a bit of a trick question. This might lose a bunch of people. Um, uh, and again, the point was just to be able to have this conversation. Uh, the reason that it's often not considered part of the construction budget is that it's not technically the base building. Uh, and the reason that's important is that the loans often separate out this information. So imagine everything goes to hell. You finish the building, everything gets moved in, but in the process, your design has just bankrupted the company uh, because you designed leather floors and whatever it was. Uh, you've just bankrupted the company. The company goes out of business. They have this building. Uh, the, the bank like, can't just sort of say, all right, I'm going to take those walls and I'm going to move them somewhere else and we're going to sell them to somebody. Like, the walls are there. Uh, you might demo them or you might change them in some way, but, but, the, but the walls are part of the building. But the furnishings, well, those could be sold, right? So they end up having a different insurance. They end up having different um, uh, uh, loans for that. It's just part, it's a different relationship to the, to the funding stream. Uh, and so often, in order to make that clear, uh, the construction budget is separated out from the FF&E budget. One of the things that's kind of interesting about FF&E is that, you know, as architects, we tend to think, uh, oh, there's going to be this big, massive budget for the, uh, for the building, and then we'll throw some furniture in there. Well, to, in certain situations, the FF&E budget is way bigger than the construction budget. Like, imagine you're doing a, uh, you know, a, let's say a lawyer's office in an existing building uh, where they're one tenant. You know, they're probably going to reuse a lot of the existing walls. They're probably going to reuse a lot of the existing HVAC, uh, but they're going to put all new furnishings in there. So you're going to put some glass walls in. You're going to put maybe a new floor in, kind of fix up some stuff, repaint, do a bunch of that. 
But then you're going to put in like a $40,000 conference room table, and you're going to put in a brand new kitchenette with it's going to be super cool and have a great espresso machine and uh, all that kind of stuff, right? So there's going to be all kinds of stuff that's going to come in uh, that's after or is, is that secondary part that is the FF&E. Um, so don't get lost in that. The FF&E can be much higher. In a lot of situations, it's much lower, but it can be much higher. They, it really depends on the construction type in the project. D is also a potentially reasonable answer. Um, the FF&E is the last thing to be delivered at site because you know, you're going to bring in the furnishings and things like that at the end. And that that kind of makes sense. Um, except it's not, uh, it's not always going to be that. And that's one of those ones where you got to watch out for those words. Uh, so always, there are plenty of times when equipment is put into place uh, before the walls are even finished because it's easier to get it in and out or they need to use it during the construction or uh, anything like that. And there's plenty of times when uh, you know, the furnishings get moved in but the painting is still happening uh, or uh, something along those lines. So uh, always watch out, always watch out for words like always or never, or things like that. Uh, so that's why C is a better answer than D. Number six, when comparing bids, the architect should uh, look for, so we're looking at a multiple bids and we're trying to figure out what it is that we want to be able to advise the owner about. We just said that the role of the architect is to advise the owner on how to, uh, and on, their, on the architect's thoughts about the various bidders uh, and then let the owner choose the, choose the bid. Uh, so we have uh, what change orders are proposed, uh, references, method of work, capacity, uh, phase one report, proposed fee, GL insurance forms. Uh, the answers here are going to be uh, obviously references. Uh, you're going to want to know have they, worked, have they done a similar project? Uh, can you talk to somebody who uh, has worked with them before? Uh, that's going to be one of the main things that the architects will end up doing is calling other owners and say, hey, how'd it go with uh, you know, ABC construction? Uh, did it work out? Uh, were they good with the change orders? Uh, you know, what, did they meet the schedule? Um, so you're going to be checking up references. That happens uh, pretty regularly on these kinds of things. Um, the method of work and the capacity, absolutely. So capacity might be, uh, let's say it's a, a construction firm that has four people in it uh, and they're going to be building a cabin and they're going to be bringing the plumbers and electricians in separately and the concrete people separately, uh, but they got four people on staff and they're going to build a cabin. Well, that sounds totally fine. They could totally build a cabin with four people. All right, uh, you're going to be building a uh, high school for a thousand kids and they got four people. So, uh, that, it depends on the method of work, like maybe it's just somebody who always subs out everything. And then the four people, well maybe that works. Um, but if, if they're trying to do all the carpentry and everything themselves and they only got four people for a high school for a thousand kids, that ain't just, this is not going to fly, this is not going to work. So that's the kind of thing you'd be uh, trying to check out and make sure uh, that that all of the bids actually are believable and that they have the capacity to do the, the project that they're um, suggesting. Uh, and then uh, the third one of the bunch is the proposed fee, which seems sort of obvious but uh, may have gotten missed by some folks. So what are they going to do it for? That's the 
that's the main question everybody's really interested in. Uh, it doesn't really matter if they say they can do it uh, for a certain amount of money, but they don't have the capacity or their references are terrible. Uh, the proposed fee is only so useful. Uh, they have stellar references uh, and they clearly have the capacity, but their proposed fee is three times what everybody else is. Well, uh, you know, you're probably not going to choose them. Uh, so you're kind of going back and forth between these. And there's a bunch of other issues as well, but definitely these three are going to be kind of the main way that you're going to be looking at the information to help the owner understand what they're about to get into. Uh, looking at A, what change orders are proposed. Change orders don't happen until a bidder has already uh, become the GC, so it can't be A. Uh, you don't know at the bidding phase anything about change orders because there's no contract to change. A change order is a change to the contract. Uh, phase one report is about environmental issues uh, and doesn't fit to this situation. Uh, the GL insurance forms um, actually uh, are not part, uh, they may be part of the, the bid package, uh, but they're not uh, typically an important part. Uh, GL means the general liability. Uh, it's not their uh, construction liability uh, insurance. General liability, Every, every business essentially has GL insurance, and so if you have it, it's, it's not really a big part of the discussion. Okay, let's move on to seven. All right, we're down to three people here. Oh boy, wow. <coughs> Number seven, there is a dispute between the owner and the GC regarding the installation of an alarm safety fixture that was required by an inspector. The GC has given a price for the work, but the owner thinks it's uh, too much and refuses. What should the architect do? Four answers are make a change order, uh, B, initiate the litigation process delineated in the contracts, C, negotiate with the inspector, D, make a construction change directive. Uh, all right, uh, a change order isn't going to happen because the contractor is ref doesn't, and the owner don't agree. So you're never gonna get uh, the two of them to sign a single change order because you have to put the price on there and they won't sign it if they don't agree. Uh, so it can't be uh, uh, make a change order. And it's also kind of interesting, some places in the country, uh, the architects are often the ones who do the change orders. I think most places in the country, the general contractor is actually the one who produces the, the change orders. That's certainly been uh, most of my experience, although I've obviously produced many, um, but typically the change orders are produced by the contractor and then the architect then signs them along with the owner and along with the, the GC. Uh, so it's not make a change order, even though that seems plausible. Uh, B, initiate the litigation process delineated in the contracts. Uh, that totally might be the thing to do if you've already gone through about five other steps first. Uh, and so litigation is always the last step because it's spectacularly expensive and difficult and it's very hard to keep a project moving while there's litigation. If you're being sued uh, by the owner and you're the contractor, man, there's a lot of reasons not to do a good job. Uh, if you're being sued by the contractor and you're the owner, it's really hard to, like, it just, it's just a bad thing. And so it's very uh, sort of last step. Um, so you wouldn't be the thing that you would do right off the bat. Uh, negotiate with the, so I'm going to say X on that, negotiate with the inspector. Uh, while I always love negotiating with inspectors, um, and it, you never know, could be 
fruitful. Um, but that's actually not a reasonable answer here. The, the inspector has uh, an agenda that's a, trying to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public, just as the architect does. Uh, and so the uh, negotiations with the inspector is just not a way that this is going to fix this problem, probably. So then the answer is going to be uh, D. And the answer is make a construction change directive. Construction change directive is this crazy thing. So you're in this situation. Uh, you need a change order to be able to get the contract up and running to make it match to the current work that needs to happen. But there's a dispute between the owner and the contractor. So what do you do? You tell the contractor, do it anyway, and we'll figure it out at the end. And that's what a, con a construction change directive is. Essentially, it's a change order that you're just mandating. And so they do the work and it will eventually either go to mediation or arbitration or some other form, um, possibly litigation, uh, some other form of mediation on this will then decide, is the owner right? Is the contractor right? Is it somewhere in the middle? Uh, and the problem, of course, is you can't just have a construction project that's maybe a 14-month construction project and you're on month five and then you just stop for a while to get this worked out, and so you're just gonna take a three-month break. Like, it just doesn't work with construction projects. It doesn't fit, and it's dangerous. Uh, you know, you'll have weather issues. There's all kinds of things. You need to keep the project going. So this is a way of saying, all right, we understand there's a dispute. We're gonna do this anyway, and we'll figure it out uh, at the end. And you might have three or four of these at the end, and then you go through a negotiation process at the end to figure out what the number should be. That's a good one to know because it will, it doesn't happen that often, but often enough that it's likely to show up on the exam. And no, Paul, uh, we're not saying you should bribe the inspector. <laughs> the, but thanks for asking. But, but good question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like your initiative, but uh, yeah, you got to be a little careful. I, you know, I will tell you, I have had situations where I was standing on the site and the inspector was asking me to do something and I had the code book in my hand. And I said, but it says right here, I don't have to do that. And he just stood there and it was very clear what I was supposed to do. Uh, and I did not do that because, man, that's something you do not want to get into. Seriously. Uh, it is an easy way. Uh, they will throw you under the bus easily. It's just a bad idea all the way around. We need one of those uh, little, little like DJ buttons here with the applause. Right. Yeah. You press the applause button. Yeah, you, do, you definitely do not want to get into it. And it, it, it will show up at some point in your career. You will have that moment, if not many times, uh, you will have it at some point. Number eight, uh, issuance of final waivers of lien should happen at uh, A, at substantial completion, B, at the point of final completion, C, there is no such thing as a final waiver of lien, uh, D, at the monthly payout review. Uh, okay, so first of all, waivers of lien. Waivers of lien, uh, uh, the lien is referring to a mechanics lien, which doesn't have anything to do with mechanics. Um, it's just the sort of an old-timey term. Uh, and a mechanics lien is any time somebody feels that they haven't been compensated appropriately uh, in a timely manner. So uh, let's say that example we were looking at before where there was the plumber line item, and they should really be paid $45,000 or $47,500 or whatever. Uh, and instead, you give them $2,000. Uh, like they're going to look at that and say, well, no, no, we're, we're way more into this than, than that. Like, 
you know, this should be up in the 40s. This doesn't, like, there could be a little bit of argument about whether you're actually at 50% or not, but it's that, it couldn't possibly be that far wrong. And then maybe it goes on and on, and they never get that extra money. It's just they're, they're, they keep working, but nobody's, nobody's paying them. So what do they do? What, what, what's the plumber supposed to do in that situation? Well, what they do, and I'm using plumbers, architects do this as well, but using the plumber as just an example, what they do is they file a legal document, which is a uh, lien, a mechanics lien, on the property. So it's about the construction, but it, they're putting it onto the property. And they're saying, uh, you know, we're owed $48,000 or whatever the number is. And uh, so we are claiming $48,000 of ownership of the property. And until we're owed that, uh, until we're paid that, you know, we're going to have this mechanics lien on the property. So what that means is it's writing with the deed. And so therefore, uh, if the company is trying to get a loan, if they're going to try to sell the building, if there's any official thing that's going to happen to that, that site, that building, uh, the, all the official players are going to say, well, wait a minute, we can't sell this building. There's a, there's a lien on it. Or we can't uh, give you a loan until you get your lien worked out. So it's a way for the small players to be able to make sure they're, they're getting a fair shake. Uh, so you put a mechanics lien on a building. So what this means though is of course that all the owners and the funders and everybody are very nervous that they're gonna pay everybody out but then somebody's gonna make a claim later and say, no, actually we, we think we're owed more money so we're gonna put a lien on the building. And then even though you're in the right as the owner and as the architect going through this, uh, you still have to go through the problem and it's a big legal mess and they might be doing it just as a way to kind of get a few more bucks out of it and so you're just trying to kind of keep it clean. So the way that you do that is you, as you uh, are handing out the checks, so this would be the GC, would be the owner would be handing the checks, uh, the big check to the GC, the GC would be handing the, the smaller sub checks to all the subs uh, and everybody's getting paid out each of those people, once they, when you hand them the check, they then hand you a waiver of lien. And what they're saying is, okay, I've got the check up to the amount that I'm uh, owed, and I'm waiving my right to put a lien onto this project uh, because you've paid me. And so it's a significant process of especially bigger buildings, like especially government-funded type buildings. Um, you know, in a small project doing a single family house or something, the waivers of lien, that kind of thing, maybe it shows up, maybe it doesn't. It's relatively simple and easy to do with a, only a few uh, players. But for, you know, a great big project, a high rise or like I said, a, a high school for a thousand students or something, there are lots of subs. There's a lot of checks going out every month. Uh, trying to keep track of that is a big deal. Uh, it's not something that the architect does. It's something that uh, the contractor um, has to make sure all of those waivers are ready, uh, otherwise the owner is not going to give them the check. Uh, but the architect gets involved often, partly because they're also being paid, uh, so they have to sign a waiver of lien, um, but also because you're trying to help that process. So you're trying to help everybody get everything ready so that that payout on that monthly timeline or bi-monthly or whatever it is uh, can happen smoothly. So it seems like a tiny little thing, but it's actually a giant thing. Uh, so when does it happen? Well, the final waiver of lien means, all right, this isn't just along the process. I give a waiver of lien when it's, you know, we're on month three of month 12 of the 12-month process. I give a waiver of lien. 
But at the final, when I'm fine, when I get all of my money, it's a final waiver of lien that can only happen uh, at the point of uh, final completion. So this is an interesting one you did here, Mike. Um, where you, again, you're emphasizing a specific word, a key word here. Yeah. Um, so just something for you guys to look for, because uh, again, when they're writing these questions, um, they're putting these extra words in there that totally change the meaning of what the answer could be. Yeah. Um, so this is a really important, this is a, a, a great example of how to like evaluate a question. Make sure you're capturing all the, all the words that are framing uh, the idea here. And as an example, uh, D would be the correct answer if the word final wasn't uh, in the question. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, because at every payout review, there's going to be waivers of lien. Um, now, like I said, not every project does a waiver of lien. If you're a smaller project, it, it's, it's kind of a paperworky thing and you know, banks aren't really going to care if this is a $60,000 you know, overall construction budget or something. But you're doing something that's you know, five or eight million bucks or even bigger, you better believe there's going to be waivers of lien because nobody wants to delay that project because somebody didn't do the paperwork. And just to kind of emphasize something I think you mentioned earlier that it's the contractor, not the architect, yeah. who is issuing this final waiver of lien. So don't be confused about that. The architect is not issuing the final waiver of lien, but the contractor is. Yeah, well, just right? to be clear, right, right. just to be clear, the architect is also getting paid. And so you also have to produce a waiver of lien for yourself. So you actually will produce your own final waiver of lien, and that has to do with your fees. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody else's fees. It's just, okay, we're at the end of the project. We are not going to put a lien on your building because we've been paid, and it's not just a monthly pay. We're completely done. It's final, so we're done. So it's a tiny one compared to what you're really usually talking about. For When you, when you say final waiver of lien, you would immediately think of the GC doing this, and that's, that means that everything is now done, the contract is essentially uh, ended. There are aspects of the contract that go past the, the, the uh, final completion, uh, warranties and things like that. But essentially the contract is now done and that final waiver of lien is that moment where you say, okay, I've got the check, you've got the final waiver of lien, we're done. But everybody will produce their own version of the final waiver of lien. The one that counts is the one that the GC produces because that's the big one. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Let's see how we're doing here. Two remaining. Rock on. Impressive. All right. Number nine. During a dispute about safety concerns at the construction site that might lead towards some sort of litigation, A, the architect's fate depends on what they have said on the site. B, the contractor is always responsible for what happens on the site. C, the owner is the one in control of the site and therefore controls safety issues. D, the architect is only responsible for the design intent. So these all sound fairly plausible. Um, the one that is absolutely uh, not true in the way that it's written uh, is C. Um, the owner always has a certain level of control about the site because you know they own it, um, but from a safety issues, like it, it just wouldn't be reasonable to assume that the owner knows about how to deal with safety uh, when you're digging a trench or uh, when there's uh, a precast wall being put up but it's a windy day. Like that, that's a detail that only really the contractors would be able to know. This is not reasonable to think that the owner could have anything real to say about safety. 
Uh, so uh, C, definitely not true. Um, B, the contractor is always responsible for what happens on the site. That is essentially true, but uh, there's a better answer. And part of the reason is, again, it's that word always. Uh, there are all kinds of things that happen on a site that the contractor can't control. Uh, it might be that the owner is doing something um, and they have the right to do things. It's their site. Uh, and there are things, if the owner is doing it, the contractor can't necessarily control that. So they can't be responsible for everything. They are generally responsible for whatever happens on the site. Uh, it's also generally true that the architect is only responsible for design intent. Uh, again, the word only is the tricky part there. The actual answer here is A, and it seems like a kind of a nutty one. Um, but if you just hear me out for a second, uh, if something is going to go towards litigation, there's a safety concern on the site, uh, the architect's fate depends on what they have said on the site. What that means is, if you've walked on the site and you said, wow, that's really unsafe over there, you should fix that. You should put a railing up. Or uh, this wall is unsteady, you should, you should do something about that. What you just did in that process was accept all of the liability for all of the safety on the job site. I know that sounds a little nutty, uh, and it's probably true that nobody has ever told you this, and you've probably said something like that on a job site, um, but you shouldn't. The safety issues are the concern of the contractor. If you have a safety issue that you are worried about, you can have a conversation with them, you just can't tell them what to do. Uh, you can ask if they want advice about it, you can add, like there's various things you can do, but you can't walk onto a job site and say, change that, put a railing over there, do something. Because in that process, legally, you are assumed now to have taken on all of the safety issues. Even if the safety concern that went into litigation wasn't the thing you were talking about. Like if you said there should be a, a railing at that elevator pit, but then somebody fell into a, uh, one of the trenches being dug and a pipe got dropped and they broke their leg. Uh, you were talking about the elevator pit, but in that process, you took on the liability of safety. Therefore, you would be sued. You would be suable, let's say it that way. You wouldn't necessarily be sued, but you would be suable in that litigation because of what you said on the site. So that's a tricky one. Uh, Sorry, uh, <laughs> but it's an important one to understand. Just because there are sort of general rules of the road doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. You actually have to follow those rules of the road, and if you say things that don't follow those, then the contracts change. And they change without anybody saying, oh, by the way, we've just changed the contract, because it changes by itself. It's just the, the nature of it. They take the notes that say, architect said this, uh, which nobody will ever read ever again unless there's a problem, at which point some uh, lawyer for an insurance company is rifing through every one of those notes. They find that note that says the architect told me to put the railing in. Suddenly everything changes. It's now a different insurance company that's going to have to pay for that. And uh, that's how that stuff rolls. Don, I'm with you. I never would have guessed that answer either. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mike got me on that one too. Uh, I, I I apologize. Although I'm, I'm getting the the uh, the always there, so I was uncomfortable with my answer of B because of your always in there. Yeah, yeah. And again, um, I actually think it would be written a little differently on mm -hmm. the on the actual exam. Uh, my the 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 point of this one is really just to hammer home that idea that um, when you're on a job site, there is meaning to what you're saying, and you have to be careful to follow the protocols and to follow the, like, who's responsible for what. A similar thing would be said, uh, an example I'm, I've given before, um, let's say you walk onto the job site and you say, uh, you see the, the painters and they're painting the wrong color, and you walk on and say, hey, stop, don't, st you're painting the wrong color, stop. Well, that seems reasonable because they're painting the wrong color and you don't want them to continue if they're painting the wrong color. But you saying stop means you've taken responsibility for the schedule. Now, you can say, why are you painting that color? Like, that's a conversation that's a reasonable conversation. Uh, and then you might go and talk to the GC and then the GC will either tell you, oh, the owner came to us and said, you're always choosing uh, that putrid uh, uh, brown color. We don't, we, he hates that brown color, but he didn't want to hurt your feelings, so he told us to use the bright blue. Uh, you know, something, there might be some totally reasonable answer, or it might be that they're painting the wrong color, and that you telling the GC says, wait, this doesn't look like the right color. The GC then looks it up. They, look, they go talk to the painter. There's a, there's a protocol to how that should work. But you saying stop to the painter gives you control of the schedule which doesn't, you know, may not seem like a big deal, but what if there's penalties uh, if the schedule goes over? What if they go over uh, and they, they have to pay a uh, thousand bucks a week for every week they're over and they're over by 10 weeks? Uh, you know, well, again, somebody's looking through those notes and they say, ah, look at that. They, they, they took control of the schedule on uh, month three, uh, so therefore, uh, we're not going to pay that, uh, those, uh, those penalties. Uh, and uh, so it's one of those things that what you say on the site, the specific way you say it is meaningful. Now, you know, when you're on a site, things are more complicated than this and people are trying to be friendly and help each other out. So, you know, don't fret about these things. It's just know that there are protocols and that those protocols have contractual meaning. Uh, and potentially, if there's litigation, big meaning. Okay. Number 10, the owner is desperate to move their employees in so they can start making money. Uh, but there is still some painting to be done. The kitchenette cabinets are not installed yet. Uh, and the carpet in three rooms has not yet been installed due to a back order. What could the architect do to help this situation? A, help negotiate the issues between the owner and the GC. B, declare substantial completion. C, schedule, the schedule is the contractual prerogative of the GC. D, unless there are specific penalties listed in the contract, there is no recourse for the owner in this situation. So, in general, yes, the GC is responsible for the schedule. That's absolutely true. Uh, if there are penalties involved, that does absolutely give the owner a little bit more leeway uh, or uh, push uh, in the situation in order to be able to get something to happen. Uh, you very well might get into the middle of negotiating between the owner and the GC to make it happen in a sort of reasonable and efficient way. But the probable best answer here is declare substantial completion. And 
question becomes then, okay, what is substantial completion? Well, substantial completion is this sort of odd little moment in the process that uh, doesn't seem like that big a deal, uh, but in fact, it's a huge deal from, uh, it, it, from the sort of paperwork side of how the schedule works. It's a really important concept. Uh, so substantial completion is obviously when things are substantially complete. Um, but what that technically means is things are complete enough, meaning it meets the code enough that an owner could move in. So it doesn't mean that things are done. It's not final completion. It means that it's not going to be uh, a situation where if people moved in, the building would not meet the code. So, for example, if some of the walls weren't finished and they were fire rated walls, well, that's part of the code. That's a part of the separations. Or a stairwell wasn't finished, or the handrails weren't in on the stairwell, or something. Those are all code issues and it would not be part, uh, like you would have to finish those things before you could declare substantial completion. But the three examples given here are there's some painting to be done, some kitchenette cabinets, uh, some you know, little, uh, little kitchen cabinets uh, in a conference room or something, uh, and a couple of rooms don't have carpet. Uh, you could absolutely, if those are the only things that are left, you could absolutely declare substantial completion, and then the owners could move their people in. Uh, and it's, a, like I said, an important moment, uh, and you, the architect, actually declare substantial completion. You actually say to the inspectors, we believe we're at substantial completion. The uh, inspectors will take a look. If there are inspectors who will do that, like not everywhere in the country has that, but the inspectors, if there are there, uh, will take a look and will agree with you or not agree with you. Uh, and then it is now substantially complete, at which point it means it's occupiable. You might get partial substantial completion, like maybe half the building is occupiable, but the other half isn't yet, or the first floor is occupiable, but the second floor isn't, something like that. But the idea of substantial completion is it's complete enough that it meets enough of the code issues uh, that uh, it's going to be safe for people to move in. Doesn't mean it's necessarily a good idea for people to move in. Uh, you know, they're still painting. Well, now they're going to be painting around all your employees and dripping on the desks and you know causing all kinds of problems. They're, they're, you're going to move desks in and chairs and all that, and then move them out in order to be able to put the carpet in on those three rooms. You know, like it it may not be a smart plan, but if they need to get going, it absolutely is uh, the sort of logical thing to happen. So it has important meaning in terms of when. Uh, the owner can start occupying the building and therefore generating revenue. Uh, but it also has important uh, meaning from the contractor standpoint. You can imagine you're a contractor, you've just painted the corridors, and then uh, you're still in the middle of doing a bunch of stuff, and then you walk in the next day and they've moved in a bunch of desks and they've dinged up the corridors. Like, how do you, you know, whose fault is that? You know, it's hard, it's hard to be able, you know, days later to say, well, no, that was, that was your guys moving furniture in, not my guys not painting it well. Uh, and so it's a complicated moment. But the other important aspect of substantial completion is when things, once you declare substantial completion, that's the start of all the warranties. So if you declare it too early and the owner doesn't move in for, say, three months uh, and you have a one-year warranty on a bunch of different things, well, you've effectively given the owner nine-month warranty because uh, they didn't move in for three months. So there was no reason to start those warranties 
back three months before they were ready to move in. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of things like warranties that happen at substantial completion. So it's kind of this switching moment. If the owners start to move in, well now they're taking over the electrical bill. While it's during construction, the electrical bill typically would be handled by the GC because that's part of the construction means and methods. Uh, and then you get to substantial completion, now there's, uh, the, own the owner is sort of claiming ownership of the building, well now that electrical uh, and other similar uh, bills go to the owner instead of the GC. So it's one of those paperwork moments where all kinds of things switch over at substantial completion. But you might have, between substantial completion and final completion, you might have a year. You might have you know, easily a month or two months or three months. Uh, it depends on what's going on. It might be that the, you know, as we said, the carpet is back order. Well, maybe it takes six months to get the carpet and then they finally get it, all right, they put it in, now we're finally complete, right? So uh, substantial completion just means that it's occupiable in a code-related way and at that point, all this paperwork stuff starts to shift back and forth. So this is one of your roles as the architect is to say, yep, we're there. Uh, you know, there are no code-related issues that are going to be in our way, so we can go ahead and do this. Uh, and then all of those things start to shift around. You do it too early, you're cheating the owner out of uh, time on the warranties, et cetera, and they're now paying the electric bills for the contractor and all of that. So you don't want to do it too early, you do it too late. Uh, well, then the owner is not getting generating uh, economic uh, activity out of the building and they're losing money. So it's a, it's a nuanced idea about when that moment should happen. And it's kind of an interesting one. It's worth sort of checking out. Awesome. <clears throat> All right, so we have a good number of questions here. We're over on time a little bit, so maybe we'll, we'll take two or three of them. Um, so the question here, is there, is there this is from Christy, uh, is there any potential liability concerns of this declaring substantial completion too early? Um, there, are, there are potentially some liability questions. I think it would be hard, um, unless it was really obvious that it was just a dumb thing to do. Like um, at, at the point that it, uh, if it is in fact a code reasonable substantial completion, you can't really be held liable for saying, by the way, we're at a code reasonable substantial completion because it, it would be true. Um, if you set it too early and the uh, owner started you know, hiring moving companies and everybody got all their furniture and then it all showed up and then it turns out there were no stairwells uh, and you're like, oh, sorry, yeah, I really shouldn't have done that. Uh, you know, well, that would be that you would declare substantial completion in a way that wasn't accurate um, and that could have some liability issues to it. It's pretty rare that an architect gets like sued for substantial completion issues, um, but it is a big money thing between contractors and owners and has uh, this sort of deep meaning. So it's nuanced, everybody knows it's nuanced. There's, uh, if the owner really wants to get in, they're gonna be yelling about it. If the GC really doesn't want them to move in, they're gonna be yelling about it. And so it's kind of a, you're kind of negotiating it out anyway. But it's, you know, typically, it's a decision that's made by everybody. Uh, and you're the only one who can say that you're meeting the code, because that's your role. But everybody can be part of that decision. It's just that it's your responsibility. So I wouldn't worry about the liability. I don't think that's a big deal, but it is potentially plausible. 
Okay, Paul asks a question um, about who issues final completion? Is it the architect, is it the contractor? Yeah, um, uh, uh, technically the architect is involved in that. There's sort of a sign off. Um, although I've got to say final completion tends to not be um, as ceremonial as the substantial completion. Uh, and the reason for that is often, as I said, it, you're waiting for the back order thing. You're like a lot of people have sort of moved on from the project, including the architect often. Um, and so like as the architect, you might not even get called when uh, the final completion thing is getting signed in. It's really a sort of like a paperwork thing saying, okay, we're done. You know, here we go. Um, but technically, yes, the architect would uh, should be there for that. But um, I, I bet I've only been at a handful of them because you know, typically it's months after it's sort of felt like it was completed, uh, and so everybody's just kind of moved on. And the, and frankly, the owners at that point are tired of paying for your time, and they really don't want you to come. Uh, so it's less uh, it's less important in that situation. It is an important contractual thing because it's the moment where you're saying. The, the contract is over, except for the things that, like, like warranties and things like that that go beyond the, the timeline. Um, but it's, so that is meaningful, it is important. Uh, it's just that it's, it's not in the midst when everybody's right there and you're having weekly meetings and all of that. All right, great. Well, <clears throat> thank you, Mike. Uh, thanks to all of you who've tuned in and submitted their questions <coughs> today. Um, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, where we'll have a discussion with recently licensed architects to learn how they pass, go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register to attend. Just like today's episode, you'll have a chance to ask questions uh, of the group uh, and get live feedback. Um, to learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out any of the free course videos. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, if you would like your boss to pay for your membership, be sure to visit uh, blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms of any size. Uh, one question we've been getting a lot of uh, is when are our ARE 5.0 practice exams coming out? And you guys should know that uh, we have scheduled uh, September 15th as the launch date for our, uh, the beta version of that. Um, so stay tuned for that. We'll probably uh, invite all of you to, uh, to participate in uh, an early release of that. So stay tuned, but uh, September 15th is the deadline for that. Um, and then uh, for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, and if you're already an AIE member, you can use coupon code 71117CEPC. You get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. And then finally, tomorrow we'll send you an email follow-up about today's broadcast. So please let us know what you think and share any suggestions you may have. You know, we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.